Welcome to the conversation. I am Mark Thompson. I'm here for Jank. It's always a pleasure to host the show. And this show has controversy in it on both sides, two very different areas, but topics that are somewhat controversial and interesting guests who will speak to that controversy and have been part of that controversy. So, uh, controversy number one involves the area of animal activism. And our guest is Cassie King. She's from Direct Action Everywhere. And you should know that Direct Action Everywhere is one of those groups, animal rights groups, that really makes a lot of noise. And you know, I think anyone who's representing any kind of cause they believe in knows that you've gotta make noise to bring attention to your cause. Hi, Cassie. Hi, Mark. Thank you so much for having me on. So let's talk a little bit about what Direct Action Everywhere is, and then let's talk about the specific controversy, or one of them anyway, involving Jeff Bezos and Whole Foods. Sure, well, Direct Action Everywhere is an international network of activists, just like myself, who have decided that we have this voice, we have this power to speak up for animals. And by tapping into the network, we can do amazing things. So one thing we do that's very unique and at the heart of the controversy is something called open rescue, which is going into the places where we know animals are being abused, like factory farms and slaughterhouses, documenting the conditions we find, and rescuing sick or dying animals, bringing them to care and story of the world with no masks and showing our faces publicly. And that does invite a lot of controversy, but it, at the end of the day, invites a conversation where I think it allows people to agree that an animal who is sick or dying in front of you, whether they're in a hot car, panting, or inside a factory farm, deserves the right to be rescued. I guess now would be a time to say, first of all, the, the Skype I know uh, fades in and out, everybody. We'll do our best to try to get Cassie. We still can, can hear you perfectly well, Cassie. I guess the, uh, one of the things that's important to note is that, you know, seeing the conditions inside these factory farms and in these situations that involve animal cruelty uh, can be extremely compelling to the point that people can change their view of a certain business. You know, you may have a, a sense uh, in your mind of, uh, 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 this is organic farming, or this is uh, they're uh, cage free. You hear all these uh, terms, but I know you guys go into these situations to expose the fact that hey, this is horrifying. What's going on here? Absolutely, and that's one of the reasons that we seek out the places that we know are using the most humane marketing and making the proudest claims about their treatment of animals to see how that actually holds up in reality. And what we find time and time again is that places like Whole Foods, which say they supply from no farms, caging or crating animals, in fact, are not only continuing to keep animals inside of cages, but they're allowing them to starve to death. They're allowing them to cannibalize. They're leaving them with wounds and just gross negligence that is causing systemic torture and death of these animals. And people are shocked to find that out because I, I think the thing that's less controversial is that no one wants that to happen. And that's why people are willing to pay more money for what they believe is actually helping animals. And this is why sort of the marketing of a more, quote, humane animal experience is so very effective and why your group is effective in drawing attention to the fact that even though it claims to be more humane and maybe advertises more humane, it is anything but because the process by definition just has no humanity as part of it. And you can go through the various areas of animal husbandry or exploitation, and I use it sort of synonymously in a way. 
because uh, it is uh, truly uh, uh, disturbing. I mean, disturbing understates it. So you guys do this controversial stuff. Uh, tell everybody, again, open rescues when you go into these places and you literally rescue one or two of these animals. The idea is just to bring attention. It's not like you're going in and grabbing all these animals out of this farm. Correct. The idea is to get this conversation started where people can see what's actually happening, make more informed decisions. And really, we want to push the system, not just these individuals, but we want the legal and the legislative and political system to confront the question, should animals be treated this way? And time and time again, especially in California, we've seen our government respond to that question and affirm the rights of animals. We just had a major victory with the fur ban in California last year. And we've had specific laws like the actual Right to Rescue Act, that's actually what it was called, about animals inside of hot cars and giving any ordinary person the right to break a window, to commit this smaller crime in order to prevent a greater harm and to save that animal's life. And so when we put these questions in front of our government, in front of the industry, I think we force a conversation where people have to admit that there is one thing that's not controversial, and that's that we don't want these animals to suffer. We just need to extend that group of animals to see that they're starving, they're overheating, they're struggling to walk and to breathe inside ammonia-filled, filthy industrial sheds in a systemic fashion, and it's just hidden from public view. Uh, so well said, and you're right, people almost to a person I mean, I suppose there's some exceptions, but have such great hearts, you know, both in this country and around the world. And when they see what's happening, uh, they have mm -hmm. trouble supporting it. And I think that you're right. And I think you're right to push to, to point to victories because those are some of the victories that have come from this attention that you've brought. Okay, now to this particularly controversial, I mean, you've, uh, it's funny, we're focusing on one, but you've done a lot. Direct Action Hour does a lot of uh, controversial stuff, but let's talk about the Whole Foods and Jeff Bezos protest for a second. Sure. Well, I've already mentioned Whole Foods because it's a battle that continues to escalate, not because we'd be unwilling to sit down to the table and just have a conversation, but because Whole Foods is relentlessly unwilling to actually converse and instead has, has driven it to the level of filing a statewide lawsuit to ban us from Whole Foods stores. They have denied what things we've found inside their farms anytime they've addressed the media continued to double down on claims that they do not allow animals in cages, that they do not agree with the footage DXC is exposing. And it's been years now since 2013 that DXC has been investigating Whole Foods and Amazon suppliers. And while at first their response was to ignore us in presumably the hopes that we would go away, uh, what's happened since Whole Foods was acquired by Amazon in recent years is that they've turned to a new tactic, which is to try to shut us down through litigation, through this lawsuit. And, you know, in response to that, we have not been shut down. We have not gone away. We see the fact that they're they're repressing us as proof that we have some real threat here that needs to come out, that needs to be aired. And so we've had activists actually confront Whole Foods CEO, John Mackey, Amazon CEO, richest person on the planet, Jeff Bezos, and get right up on stage and try to talk to them. I, I don't know if you think that's controversial. I'd love to hear what you think Jeff Bezos should be doing about criminal animal cruelty being exposed in his farms because he has more 
power, more ability, and I think with that ability, more obligation than anyone to do something about the crisis that we're in right now that's affecting human and non-human animals globally. And well, to the point about Jeff Bezos and Whole Foods, it also seems as though they represent themselves sort of to the woke generation, uh, to the moneyed woke generation as well. And so to that extent, I mean, if you wanna be all woke about it, you've got to be aware of the fact that there is all of this stuff going on and you guys really drew back the curtain on this. And so this attention that you've now drawn toward Bezos and Whole Foods has come back to you in the form of the lawsuit. Has anyone been prosecuted as a result of, uh, uh, you know, you showed up at a Whole Foods store. I mean, I know you linked arms and you, and you blocked, they would say, I guess, block people from coming through. I mean, you were trying to create attention and disturbance, but to be fair, I mean, that's a kind of controversial thing to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the action that you're referencing happened at a Whole Foods in San Francisco. And in these more progressive cities, we've actually seen a lot of leniency and not only that, but support. And it's in the bigger farm counties like Sonoma County where we have seen the opposite and seen the government take the side of big ag and support them in trying to repress us. So I myself am facing eight felony charges in Sonoma County for going to Whole Foods and Amazon supplying farms for holding a flower holding up a peace sign and talking about what I'm seeing on live stream and showing the world what's happening. And in cases where we found sick animals, trying to help them, trying to give them food and water and get them to care. This is a critical thing that, that you're, you're saying, have, I don't mean to interrupt, but I, this is a critical thing you're saying because this is the tactic that's been most aggressive by industry. And that is to bring uh, charges of felony to you and many other activists who are there, as you say, and you're committed, DXC, as I know, to nonviolent situations always, even right. in the face of violence, you're committed. I know it's sort of in your in your doctrine uh, to, to be non, uh, nonviolent. I'm not trying to rep particularly uh, for you. I'm just suggesting that everything I've read really makes that sort of a doctrinal principle, you know, the nonviolence. And yet these felony uh, accusations and these, uh, these legal mm -hmm. challenges that have involved felonies, that's a serious thing. It is, and you're right that we've had over 120 people now arrested on multiple felony charges in Sonoma County alone. And these are people who were completely nonviolent actions where grandmothers were present, young children were present, and we made it very clear our intentions were to help the animals. And yet the response is dozens of police in riot gear and these felony charges and $20,000 bail and just such an amped up situation that makes it very clear these prosecutions, they really are politically motivated. And then when we go to other politicians, we go to other legislatures like San Francisco and Berkeley, we've seen a huge difference. And in fact, Berkeley just passed just in December, a resolution to say, we're condemning the prosecution of these activists in Sonoma County and we support the right to rescue animals who are suffering and in need of help. And so to go to the exact opposite extreme, they're actually stepping in and saying that when citizens take action that is both you know, morally justified and legally justified, because we do have a legal argument in California law to help these animals, that it's wrong to prosecute those people instead of doing anything about the criminal animal cruelty that's being exposed.
Cassie King, good luck to you. DX Everywhere is uh, how you can reach them on Twitter, at DX Everywhere. It's direct, direct action everywhere. And uh, Cassie, good luck. I should say that, you know, industry would tell you, hey, look, they're getting in the way of our ability to do business. So uh, I don't want to not at all represent what they're saying. But again, that's about money, and that's why there's so much pushback. You're getting in the way of revenue. But anyway, Cassie King, thank you. I hope we talk again. Thank you, too. All right. The conversation continues in a moment. Welcome back to The Conversation. I am Mark Thompson here for Jank. It's a pleasure to be with you. And we jump right into a controversy involving immigration. And someone who works with the Pangea legal team, the immigration attorney and co-director there, Sean Ly McMahon joins us. And hi, Sean. Thank you for being here. Hi, thanks for having me. You know, Sean, this case is fascinating in so many different ways. Uh, I want to start to kind of describe what's going on, but let's, I'll bottom line it and then maybe we can do it in flashback, okay? Your client sure. is uh, essentially, we're trying to get him back. When I say we, I'm talking about you, or trying to get him back to the US, right? He was sent back to Chad. He is Chadian, is he not? Yes, that's right. He's from Chad in Africa. He's been here in the US for about 10 years. He came seeking asylum, uh, fleeing political persecution, and has been a fixture of his community in San Francisco for the past 10 years until ICE apprehended him last August in his apartment. And when he first came here, he came here for reasons involving, as you say, trying to get away from Chad for reasons that have to do with the government, for, in essence, fearing for his life, fearing for his culture. He came back, he was a productive member of, as you say, San Francisco life. He had a job, he had multiple jobs. Uh, but I mention these things because ultimately we see a, a change. First of all, ICE deports him. Yeah, they're taking him back to Chad. But And you try to intercede as his attorney. And now in this time, he's come out as gay. That's a very important part of this equation now because that changes his return to Chad. Chad making a gay lifestyle illegal in that interim between 2017 and now. Yes, that's right. Uh, actually, when we in my office encountered him, he had been detained by ICE. They were getting ready to deport him. And while talking to him, we realized that he had another basis for asylum, not just political and ethnic persecution, but also because he's an LGBT individual. And as you mentioned, Chad is a very homophobic society and recently criminalized uh, being gay in their uh, state legislation there. So uh, we moved to try to reopen his case to show that he has another basis for asylum. And while we were doing that, uh, I summarily deported him overnight, essentially. Uh, that's when we filed a habeas petition with the federal court who then ordered that ICE has to bring him back as soon as possible. But that becomes its own complicated part of this whole story because for him to return, certain papers have to be in order that are not in order. I'm speaking of visas and that sort of thing. Yes, that's right. And I think this is where uh, what we talk about the problem being in Omar's case really speaks to a broader dysfunction in the system, which is that there's a lot of people like Omar who have a legitimate claim for asylum or to stay in the US. ICE basically makes a mistake, removes him, and then now asserts that they can't easily get him back. They could get the travel documents to send him there, which they had to do, but now say those documents are not sufficient. 
to get him back. They're saying he needs to get a passport and do these other types of bureaucratic paperwork uh, and are putting the burden on an individual person who is afraid of his own government, uh, doesn't have resources there as opposed to the US government, which used all of their resources to send him there in the first place. I think you state it so well and it speaks to a bigger problem, frankly, which is one involving making asylum so much harder to achieve here in the US. Yeah, absolutely. The asylum laws are incredibly complicated. People do not have the right to an attorney, an assigned attorney like they do in criminal court. And so you have regular individual people, many of whom don't speak English as a first language, trying to figure out what the basis are for them to be able to win their cases here. For a person like Omar, for example, he knew he was afraid of living in Chad for political reasons, but didn't appreciate that he could also bring an additional claim based on his sexual orientation. Plus for a lot of people who come from these kind of deeply homophobic cultural contexts, it's hard for them to come out publicly and put that forward in a court. So I think that there's probably a lot of other people in a similar position who just didn't have an attorney intervene at the right time. Thank you, that's exactly to the point I was going to get to, which is people might say, well, hey, look, why didn't he come out as gay sooner? It sounds to me like he's just kind of coming out as gay because that might be a, an immigration card he can play. And the truth is there are all sorts of cultural reasons, maybe there are even parental reasons you don't. You know, your, your, your family or afraid of your parents. I know some of the money that he had received to help him with his uh, move to the US was from his family. So you get why people don't just play the gay card, if you will. I mean, it's not as though they wanna scream that from the rooftops coming from that culture. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, with Chad, for example, in many African countries, homosexuality is illegal. It's on the books that if you have homosexual relations, as they say, or engage in pro-LGBT advocacy activities, you could be targeted. And in Chad, uh, there are widespread human rights abuses across the board for any kind of dissident or person who steps out of line. So you can imagine for someone coming from that context that it's very difficult to then put that forward in front of a court and say, this is who I am and this is the reason I need to stay in the United States. You know, you look at the kind of jobs that he had, and I, again, look at his case as sort of representative of maybe the cases of many immigrants who come or those who are seeking asylum, you know, working in meatpacking plants and working with a lot of situations that, frankly, most Americans who are, you know, uh, born and raised in this country sort of shy away from. He'd had a, a, a decent life. How did this whole thing come tumbling down? Uh, it was originally he had applied for asylum based on political persecution and ethnic persecution and had lost that case and had been appealing it through the courts. And he had essentially lost his final appeal last year. ICE then found him at his apartment. They just came to his apartment early in the morning and arrested him there. And that's there wasn't any other type of criminal matter or anything else that put him on their radar. And in his case, you had mentioned he did a lot of these kind of restaurant jobs. It's very common for immigrants, but it's also how he met a lot of his American friends who are extremely supportive. Uh, I think my office wouldn't be involved in the same way if it hadn't been for them. Uh, it was his friends who had identified that he was about to get deported and they texted me and that's how we were able to act quickly. So I think you know he's a person who's very well loved and has a lot of connections, not only among immigrants, but a lot of 
American citizens who are born here too. Wow, that's a terrific point. I was reading that his GoFundMe actually, and that's of course a, a group of people, maybe in the immigrant community, maybe in the, uh, the community of those who are you know born and raised here, uh, uh, citizens. They, they raised fourteen thousand dollars on his behalf, so he's really got a community of support. Yeah, absolutely. His friends have been um, you know an amazing, amazing network for him. They're really. They always say he was a pillar of support for them before, and so now they've really come out in force to be supportive on his behalf too. Uh, in addition to that GoFundMe, they also started a petition trying to call on Senator Feinstein, who's his elected representative here in San Francisco, to pressure DHS and the State Department to facilitate the paperwork so he can brought, be brought back quickly. And I think that petition now already has over 31,000 signatures. You know, just reading about his case and his uh, sect of uh, religion and how they're oppressed in Chad, and it's just, uh, you know, you realize these people are just really trying to scratch together some kind of halfway decent life. But the asylum system here is, uh, it's capricious. It's uh, completely arbitrary sometimes. And, you know, it's sort of a spin of the wheel, isn't it? Yeah, capricious is the right word. You know, depending on what part of the country your case ends up being in or what detention center you get put in, you may end up uh, winning or losing your case for that reason. You know, in Omar's case, uh, his cousin has won asylum here on a relatively similar claim. So as you said, it's, it's capricious. There's these differences in the system that don't really seem to make a lot of rational sense. And obviously in the past few years, it's been getting harsher every day. You know, because you do deal with so many different immigration cases, I just wanna ask you quickly about ICE. Uh, ICE also seems to, arbit I don't wanna say arbitrarily, because clearly they're deciding where they go, but they seem to have a lot of liberty as to where they go and who they decide to, to bust. Yeah. Uh, is that just my perception or is that really the way it is? It is. It's hard to say whether it's a deliberate tactic or just happenstance that they do seem to go after almost anyone. And there's not really uh, a setting of priorities in terms of who they go after. You know, if you talk about a guy like Omar, there is nothing that would suggest that he ought to be the target of uh, immigration agents coming to his apartment in the early morning to get him out of his bed except that he had lost his asylum appeal. And in fact, as we know, as I'm sitting here today, uh, he had another legal avenue, he just didn't know it yet. Um, and they do that all the time. There's you know, apprehensions sometimes that are called collateral arrests where they say they're looking for one person and then happen to encounter a family member who they believe is undocumented and then arrest that person as well. So these are common tactics with um, ICE enforcement. And unfortunately, I think over the past couple of years, we've only seen them increase. In our remaining seconds, tell us where he is now and what the prospects are for his successful asylum to this country. Uh, as Omar is now in Chad and we are trying to bring him back as quickly as possible. I believe uh, he will come back and that when he gets back, we'll be able to win his case. I hope that people watching at home could if they are in her district, uh, contact Feinstein's office or other people who sit on the Judiciary Committee, because they do have oversight over DHS and the State Department and the border. And uh, I believe that if we can get this paperwork issue sorted, then he can come back and we will win his case in court. Good luck.
We'll watch with interest. I learned a lot just from this case. I wasn't familiar with it. And it's not just the case. It's all the issues that interlock with the case. So thanks so much. Sean Light McMahon, appreciate the visit. Thanks for having me. All right. And that's all the time for this episode of The Conversation. Thank you for joining us. Uh, I have a podcast. Do I have a podcast episode going up soon? I think so, later this week. So check it out. It's called The Edge with Mark Thompson. And there's a new episode going up this week. Uh, Until next time. Bye-bye.